Hello, and welcome to another episode of Her Head in Films. I'm Caitlin, and I'm your host. On this podcast, I share my thoughts and feelings about the films that I watch. They tend to be art house and world cinema. What makes this podcast unique is that I weave together my life experiences with an in-depth and deeply personal discussion of films. I explore the impact that cinema has on me and why I connect so deeply to it. As I like to say, my head isn't in the clouds, my head is in films. Today's episode is about Catherine Corsini's 2015 film Summertime, aka La Belle Saison, that's the French title. It tells the story of two women, Delphine and Carol, who fall in love against the backdrop of the burgeoning women's movement in 1970s France. I talk about French feminism, the way Catherine Corsini represents female desire and lesbian love, and much more. So please stick around while I explore the film. Also, I go into everything about this film, so there are spoilers in this episode. If you'd like to support the work I'm doing, please consider becoming a patron on Patreon. You can access extra episodes, vote in polls, and much more. Go to patreon.com slash herheadinfilms. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash herheadinfilms for more information. You can also review the podcast on iTunes, tell your friends and followers about her head in films and or follow me on social media and even interact with me on there in a positive way. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just a note for this episode, I usually list patron names at the beginning of each episode, usually around this point, but I'm trying to shorten my introductions going forward and make them more concise and just make them flow better. So all patrons will be named at the end of this episode and all episodes going forward. I've been on hiatus for around five months and it's really great to be back. So this is my first episode in many months. I was on hiatus to begin with because my dog almost died after surgery to remove a lump on his backside. That happened in late 2019. It was a really difficult, scary experience. Thankfully, he did not die. He is safe and alive and and doing great. Even though we thought we were going to lose him at one time, he recovered. I mean, it was really miraculous in a way. And once we got through that, then at the beginning of 2020, my mom had a bad fall in our house and she broke her shoulder in four places. She ended up in the hospital. She had to undergo surgery. That was very scary. Longtime listeners know my mom is my world and is everything to me. So that was an extremely stressful experience. So those are the reasons I was gone for a while. And now we're all dealing with the COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic. I don't want to dwell on it because I know we're all struggling to survive it, and I know it's a frightening time. I imagine that you're listening to this episode as a way to escape the news. I just want to say that like you, like many people, I'm reeling from everything that's happening. I am scared, and I feel profoundly powerless. All I can do is try to use film to forge connection and to reach out. I hope that this episode can be a comfort to any of you who are listening. So I won't go on any longer. Here's my episode about Catherine Corsini's Summertime. I'm really excited 
excited to talk about this film by Catherine Corsini. Before I get into everything that I love about it and just, you know, go through why it's so great, why I think it's important, and hopefully if you haven't seen it, you will watch it. And maybe if you don't mind spoilers or anything, maybe this episode will inspire you to watch it after you listen who knows. But I wanted to give some historical context before I got into the film itself, because I think with this film, historical context is really important, because it is set, like, in 1971, which is, like, okay, I'm gonna be honest with you. I still live in the 1990s, (laughs) so... (laughs) Like, honestly, in my head, I'm still a child, and it's, like, 1998, and the 1970s are not that long ago. Like, to me, it's really hard to believe that 1970 was 50 years ago. Like, in my head, it's not even 2000 yet, and it was only, like, 30 years ago. But it was 50 years ago. I have to face this. And in that way, it's become this really remote history, and I don't know if a lot of people are really educated about the women's movement, right? That came about around this time in the 60s and 1970s. And in France in particular, it really started in 1970, which I'm going to talk about. I think a lot of people are kind of ignorant about it or they don't know a lot about it. And it's this rich, fascinating history. I myself am by no means an expert, but feminism is really important to me. I want to learn more about it. I actually haven't read enough like history books about feminism and I would love to do that. It's just my time is so limited these days. It's a hard part about becoming an adult, I think. When you're a teenager or even when you're in college, you have so much more time at your disposal. You can read more. You can watch more films. Like there's so much more you can do at that age. When you get older and you get into the workforce and you become an adult, your time is so much more limited. So would I love to read all about feminist history? And of course, I just don't always have the time. But I wanted to give like a sort of a brief overview about it because I think it's important in relation to this film. This is an overview. This is by no means comprehensive. It's not overly detailed, but it gets to the important parts of it, I think. And I did do some research specifically on feminism in France in the 1970s because that's when this film is set. But first, I wanted to say the women's movements in both the United States and France were a time of extraordinary and revolutionary change. A time when women, really en masse, started to look at their oppression and to resist it. It was a time of awakening, in particular, when women discovered connection with each other and they started to center women in their lives. Not all women by any means, but the women who were part of the women's movement and what we would also call here in the U.S. second wave feminism. The first wave would be considered the women who fought for the right to vote, so the suffragists. Lo and behold, 2020 is actually the 100th anniversary of the suffragists, not of the suffragists, but of the 19th Amendment here in the United States that gave women the right to vote. It's a really big anniversary. And I have plans to try to watch some stuff. There's going to be some books and some documentaries and stuff released this year in 2020 to mark this momentous anniversary. 100 years of suffrage for women. I would like to watch some of those documentaries and maybe read some of those books. So 100 years ago, we got the right to vote. 50 years ago, really, the women's movement 
started, the second wave of feminism that brought us so many important things. During the second wave, and I'll also call it the women's movement, it went by some different names, you know, second wave feminism, women's liberation, women's movement. It's sort of all kind of, you know, the same thing, just has different labels. But during the women's movement, Uh, women started to talk about their bodies. This was something that was very forbidden for a long time. It's still something that's hard to talk about for us to actually talk about our bodies. Women started to talk about their lives, their struggles, their desires. Women came together to create magazines, book presses, music festivals, and other things for women and by women and that centered women. Most importantly though, women got political. They addressed and they fought for access to birth control and abortion. They knew that in order for women to be truly free, they must have complete control over their bodies and their reproductive health. And this is something that we still know and something that's still under threat. If women want to have freedom, true freedom, we have to be able to control our lives. We have to be able to control our bodies and our reproduction. In France and in the U.S., abortion was legalized during this time. And it's one of the most important and lasting contributions that the women's movement made. You know, also on a deeper level, this movement changed how women saw themselves and how they saw their relationships with men, whether it was how their fathers or husbands or boyfriends or male bosses treated them. It was also a time when lesbians were awakened and became open about their sexuality. Have there always been lesbians? Of course. There's always been lesbians and gay people. So I'm not acting like the women's movement is the first time any lesbian was out or something. But it was a time when I think a lot of uh, lesbians just started to be more open about it. That's really important. You know, as the women movement was going, so was the gay rights movement. There was a lot of movements, you know, gay rights, women's rights, civil rights in the 60s into the 70s and even the 80s. There was a ton of activism by gay rights um, activists, especially when AIDS started in the 1980s. So this is a fertile time period, these few decades, when a lot of these movements are rising and it's just fascinating to learn about. I love learning about it. So this was a time really when women also pushed back against sexist message of women's inferiority. They insisted on the power of women and the importance of our lives. They criticized anything and everything that objectified women and reduced us to sexual objects that are just there for men's pleasure. Women artists, writers, musicians, activists, and more questioned and rejected oppressive stereotype and stereotypes and essentialist ideas about women. This idea that, oh, all women are nurturing or women belong in the home, or all women are naturally this way or naturally that way. We're not born liking makeup or liking the color pink. That's something that society imposes on us and socializes us to like. We're not just born loving pink, right? We're not just born playing with dolls. Second wave feminists in particular were pushing back against this idea that, well, if you're a little girl, you need to dress a certain way and you need to just play with dolls and you need to take care of babies and be a mother, and that's just all you should do. Second wave feminism was 
about a woman could be anything that she wanted to be. Women could dress and act how they wanted and they deserved also to be free from sexual violence. These women brought domestic violence and rape to the forefront. Women talked to each other about their trauma and they found support and they fought back and were still fighting back against the oppression and exploitation of women, both in the West, you know, here in the United States, in France, and around the world. But so much was done by the women who came before us in the second wave. Corsini's film wants to celebrate them and remember them. They were ferocious, confrontational, but also exuberant. They really were bringing into being a new world, a new way for women to see themselves and the world around them, and to critique patriarchy. That was a huge part of the second wave as well. As I, as I mentioned, uh, women's relationship to men, the way that men dominate women, and women they had these like their consciousness was being raised about the patriarchal the patriarchal world that women live in so women were really being given like a language for what they had experienced for centuries millennia and that's really important to be given a language to describe your oppression to talk about the violence that you've endured as a woman and to really realize that it's not your fault that there is this system in place called patriarchy that affects your life really in every possible way feminism for me has always been central and really important to me because it gave me that language to talk about, oh, I'm being treated a certain way because I'm a woman. My body's being looked at it a certain way. I'm being reduced. I'm being degraded. I'm being treated in particular ways because I am a woman. It gave me the language to understand that and to see that it's not my fault, that there are these forces that are much larger than myself that are affecting my life and affecting how I see myself how I interact with others, there is a reason why this is happening. And I've encountered sexism in myriad ways from my body image, being treated particular ways because my body does not conform to what's seen as beautiful. And beauty is such an oppressive thing for women, you know, and thinness. And that's something that's been a big part of my life, being poor and working class has affected me as a woman. Interacting with the medical world has been hard. There's a lot of sexism on the part of doctors when it comes to women's bodies and women's pain. That is a big thing that's affected me because I struggle with my body and health issues and disability and it's not taken seriously and it's been dismissed when I have tried to go to the doctor. So there's a lot of ways in which my life has been affected by me just being a woman, (laughs) me inhabiting this body that's undeniable and feminism has helped me because it's shown me oh other women experience this this is not just in my head you know or if I think about when I was a child feeling like I was treated differently than than like the boys who were in my family or like relatives like cousins and feeling like I was treated differently because I was a girl you know just things like that or how you're brought up how you're socialized to be quiet to be polite to be nice and to smile all the time and to perform like your happiness constantly. The way you do feel objectified, the way you do feel defined by your physical body and how you look. And if you're not beautiful, then you're just worthless. You know, it's just all these things that have conspired in my life. And feminism has given me that language to look at that 
and to, I guess, try to cope with it better or something and to want to change it. Like, that's the thing. I think when you're awakened to feminism, you realize, okay, this is how the world is, but it doesn't have to be this way. And things can be better and things can be changed. And the women of the second wave, that's what they were doing. And in the women's movement, they were saying, okay, uh, women can't get access to safe abortion. Women can't control their bodies and their reproductive health um, through contraception. Well, we need to change that. <laughs> and the film shows that as well. Like, it's not just, well, we're just going to take it and we're going to accept it. It was about these women saying, no, we're going to protest. We're going to stage demonstrations. We're going to fight back. We're going to demand these rights. We're going to demand these things. And that's what they did. That's what's so powerful about it. And it's often an era that is very caricatured and disparaged just reduced to like all oh, these angry women burning their bras these ugly hairy women right and lesbians they're often they use lesbian as a way to attack women like the right wing especially just calling them oh they're ugly hairy angry lesbians like that's the image I guess of the women's movement and the second wave and like they've weaponized that word lesbian to make women afraid of being called lesbians and it's a very destructive thing it was not just about burning their bras although what's wrong with that and if you are hairy what's wrong with that right and if you are a lesbian there's nothing wrong with that they take those words and they make them a pejorative right they make them a put down an insult and I think it's been a really good way to make women distance themselves from feminism or from that feminism that more confrontational feminism and the women's liberation movement right it's like oh I don't want to be seen as all those things and it you know it keeps women from it I want to be the cool girl or something it's been really negatively sort of stereotyped and denigrated in that way and I love that Corsini is like, no, no, this era was important. We're going to remember it. We're going to honor it. It was a transformative era and we owe much of the rights and freedoms that we enjoy today to those women. So I did want to talk a little bit about feminism in France because with what I just said, I was talking more broadly and generally, mainly more about the United States kind of, but this is specifically about French feminism in the 1970s. And I did a little bit of research, a little bit of uh, reading. And I came across this article by Francoise Peake, um, and she writes about the feminist movement in France, and she's a feminist activist and historian. The women's movement in France began in 1970, and it, it was called the MLF, Movement de Liberation de Femme, the movement for the liberation of women, really. And it's called um, the MLF, and that formed in 1970. And I wasn't even going to try to do my French accent with that, so I'm sorry if I didn't pronounce it right. I took French for many, many years in high school, in college, but it's embarrassing when I try to speak French, so I'm not going to do it. The women's movement was really influenced by May 1968 and the protests that happened around that time. I think a lot of women on the left, not just in France, but also in the United States, felt kind of left out by a lot of movements, and they felt like marginalized even in some of these movements. There were a lot of these social movements where men would still dominate them and women were still sort of subordinated and were still doing what's considered like woman's work. And so women didn't feel totally centered in some of these leftist social movements. And it sounds like in France, 
that kind of led more women to start the women's movement to focus on their rights solely. And so many of these women feeling subordinated by these leftist groups formed women-only groups. 1970 has been called year zero for women's rights in France, but really French women had been fighting for their rights for centuries in different ways, going back as far as the French Revolution. And they did a lot of public protests, a lot of public demonstrations. They were very aggressive and confrontational in their fight for women's rights. Francoise Peak says that the greatest victory of this movement was, quote, the new law liberalizing abortion. This issue has been one of the principal fights of the new women's movement in every Western country. In France, the battle was especially heroic and mobilizing. In the end, the whole of society was mobilized and the state had to give up, unquote. So abortion was a really big thing that women fought for in France, and that was the same here in the United States. The result was Roe versus Wade, which gives us the constitutional right to abortion. Of course, the states in our country have done a really good job of limiting women's access to abortion. A lot of clinics have closed down over the past few decades. There are some states that only have one abortion clinic. I know Texas only has a few left, like maybe two or three. I mean, don't quote me on that, but they have very few, and there are some states that only have one. There are ways that local and state officials sort of get around Roe versus Wade and make it really difficult for abortion clinics to operate. Francoise Peak writes, quote, the government was challenged and in the end it had to change the law. It changed the law on abortion and contraception, but also on other issues where the feminists could obtain the support of public opinion, like family laws, divorce, rape, many laws that gave more freedom to women, more power, and more equality in the family, at work, and society were voted in, unquote. And so many of the feminists back then, that's what they were doing. They were challenging everything about the way that women were treated through divorce, through rape, through the justice system, right? It was about women's life in the home, women's lives outside the home, how they were treated by society. It was that, that's why it was so transformative, is that it was every aspect of women's lives. And then I also read this thing by Lisa Greenwald. It was an interview, and she's written the book Daughters of 1968, Redefining French Feminism and the Women's Liberation Movement. And she talked a bit more about the way that the French feminists won the fight for abortion. She said, quote, The way in which abortion was legalized in France is particularly important for us to examine. Women took to the streets en masse, yes, but prominent celebrities, intellectuals, and doctors all put their careers on the line to announce publicly their support for and their participation in abortion. The arguments addressed women's insistence on physical autonomy and a public recognition that abortion was a fact of civilization and that it would continue regardless of France's policies. The only question was if it would be performed under sanitary medical conditions or on dining room tables with knitting needles. Unquote. And I think that's how I think a lot of feminists here in the U.S. try to approach it too, is that we're dealing with very Christian, evangelical, right-wing people on abortion, and it's hard... It's hard to have a discussion, right? It's just all anti-abortion. I think what a lot of feminists believe is like, this is going to happen no matter what. Women get abortions. It's a fact of life. It's not going anywhere. It's happened for a long, long time. The difference we can make is that we can save women's lives. Like, that's what it's about. It's about, do you value women or do you not? I mean, beyond just the very important issue of women having control over their bodies and their lives... (laughs) Like, that's central for me. 
But if we're going to make this argument, even if you are against abortion for religious reasons or whatever, why would you want to risk women's lives who are going to get abortions anyways? If you really care about human life, what about the life of the mother? What about the life of the woman in this scenario? And it's very hard to even, you know, get there because conservatives and right-wing people have just had such a stranglehold on the political arena here in the United States. But it sounds like that argument in France was very successful of like, well, this is going to happen anyways. Let's make sure that it's safe and that we're taking care of women and valuing women's lives, right? And that we don't have women dying of this. And Greenwald goes on, quote, consider, before 1945, women could not vote. Before 1965, married women could not control their earnings, decide where to live, regulate their fertility, or take their children on a trip without their husband's permission. Yet a generation later, the conservative, patriarchal society legalized birth control and abortion and created a women's ministry largely due to the ideas and political pressure of a small, brilliant, and passionate group of women, unquote. I love that because that lays it all out what they did in France, that within a generation, women's lives were completely transformed and they had more autonomy. They had more agency. And you see a lot of that happened here in the United States as well. And as I said earlier, we enjoy so many rights and freedoms because of these women. And Corsini's film is trying to honor that and make sure that we remember it. So I just wanted to give a little bit of the of behind the scenes information about the making of the film and how the film came to be. Catherine Corsini herself is a lesbian and the film is produced by her partner, Elizabeth Perez, so the both of them were involved in the making of this film. Corsini infused the film with some of her own experiences, like her relationship with her mother and her struggle to tell her mother that she was a lesbian. And Corsini made this film partly in reaction to the controversy that surrounded gay marriage in France. Gay marriage did pass in France in 2013. Now, I tried to find some information about it. It was kind of difficult, but from what I gather there were demonstrations against gay marriage in France. I would imagine that France obviously has right-wing people and conservative people just like we do here in the United States. People who are against homosexuality and against gay marriage and it sounds like this was kind of a controversial law and that there were demonstrations against gay marriage. It sounds like it was a very real battle to get this legislation passed and that's in 2013. You know, you would think that these Western countries would be more progressive, but that's not always the case. So this opposition to gay marriage, it did pass, but it just was a battle, was inspiration for Corsini. And it seems that she really wanted to look back at history. She wanted to look at the formation of the women's movement and also the gay rights movement and how these two movements sort of overlapped and interacted. In an interview with the site Women in Hollywood, which I really love, if you don't follow Women in Hollywood, you really should. (laughs) And there will be links to everything that I am talking about. All the interviews I read and everything will be in the, the show notes of the episode. I always do that. And I really wanted to share some quotes in a Women in Hollywood interview, Corsini said, quote, Feminists and feminism are sometimes viewed negatively or as having a bad character. What I wanted to do in this film was to pay tribute and to show solidarity with these feminist pioneers. I think it is very important to remember what and how much they did for the liberation of women and of men, too. 
unquote. And she wanted to specifically pay tribute to lesbian feminists. Like that is what is very important to Corsini in this film. But she thinks that their contributions really should be honored. She said, quote, I wanted to show that these women were free. They were free to reflect, to think. They were the first to dare to really consider the condition of women, the condition of the couple, and to examine machismo in society, unquote. It was a big deal to Corsini to create a great love story. That was her mission, first and foremost. Not just the political aspect. Obviously, the politics are important. It's why I'm so drawn to the film, but also the love story is what anchors it between Delphine and Carol. So it was really important for her to not just talk about the historical moment that the film is set in, but the larger story of these two women falling in love with each other. It's like they are falling in love with each other during a very like revolutionary time. And I think there's something very beautiful about that. And I love that she wanted to make this into a great love story. She said that she was inspired by other great love stories like James Ivory's Morris and Angley's Brokeback Mountain. She even sees the film kind of as the female Brokeback Mountain. That's according to another interview that she did. I I believe that it is a really great film. I think it certainly enters like the the lesbian classics in my opinion and I've covered another lesbian love story called Desert Hearts by Donna Deitch and I have an episode about that and I see some similarities between this film and Desert Hearts even though Catherine Corsini did not bring up Desert Hearts in any of her interviews but I do love that she brought up Morris and Brokeback Mountain. I have an episode about James Ivory's Morris because it's one of my favorite films and that is a gay love story between two men. I'm doing an episode about Brokeback Mountain. I'm working on that as we speak as I'm also recording this episode. (laughs) The work never ends sometimes when you're doing a podcast but I love Brokeback Mountain and I've always wanted to talk about it because I have really vivid memories of seeing it. I saw it in a movie theater when I was younger and I just think it's a stunning film. And I also want to note that in an interview with SBS, Corsini says that she wished she had made the film earlier before Blue is the Warmest Color. Blue is the Warmest Color tends to be very controversial, especially among lesbians. And I know there was a lot of criticism of the film, of the love scenes, specifically between the two female leads, Leia Seydoux and Adele Exarpolos. Please don't judge me for how I pronounce that. (laughs) I have an episode about blue as the warmest color. Do I think there's issues in the film? Yeah, I still personally like the film. I do agree that it is, it's told from sort of a male gaze type thing. But I also think that Leia and Adele give full-bodied, rich, deep performances and that I really connect to Adele in that film. I see it as like a coming of age story as well as a love story as well as like a story about class. Like I kind of see it in a lot of different ways but I agree that the the love scenes do feel you know exploitative and they feel very awkward and stiff. Very different from the beautiful love scenes in Summertime which I will talk about. She was actually writing the script for Summertime when she heard about Blue as the Warmest Color. She does think that that film opened the door for her film, but she also sees it as a film from a man's perspective, and she feels like there should be more films about lesbians 
told from, you know, a woman's point of view and a lesbian point of view. That's just a little bit of background about the women's movement, about feminism in France in the 1970s. Not comprehensive, just giving you an overview and sort of bullet points here. And then some behind the scenes information that I could find about summertime. I read a lot of interviews and looked for as much information as I could find and that's what I uncovered. And so now I'm really excited to dig into this film. excited to talk about this film and to get into it. I don't know. I think there's films that you come across that they give you this feeling. I don't know. They give you like this feeling of possibility or exhilaration. I don't know. It's just when you encounter this type of film, first of all, it's very rare. And when I feel it, I take note of it. And I know that, okay, I need to dedicate an episode to this film. I need to explore this. And that's how I sort of immediately felt about this film, Summertime, La Belle Saison. Beautiful. (laughs) I just knew I had to talk about it. Like I could fill up so much time talking about it. The thing is, this is something I've been thinking about lately. I really don't like contemporary films for the most part. I don't know what's wrong with me. I don't know if there is anything wrong with me. I don't know if any of y'all can relate to this at all, but you know, I'm on Twitter. I'm on social media too much and I see all the best of lists and oh, the best of 2019, the best of 2020. And I go and I watch some of those films and I'm like, this is it? Really? Really? (laughs) Yeah, I know my my voice is going to go high with that. Like, really? (laughs) Okay. I don't know what that says about me, The films that get nominated for Oscars, I tell you, it will forever frustrate me and confound me. The films that get so much attention given to them. It feels like around award season or even beyond, like there's five films every year that people lose their minds over. Everybody just constantly talks about them. And I go and I watch some of them and I'm like, really? This is what all of y'all are talking about? I don't know. I don't know why I have that reaction. And it makes me feel very like alienated or like an outsider when it comes to film Twitter and online film culture. Because I'll go and I'll watch these films that everybody's raving about. And I just kind of feel, I don't hate them. There are a few that I've actually really hated. And that's quite rare for me to have a really negative reaction to a film. Oftentimes what happens is that I'm just indifferent to it. I'm just like, okay, I spent an hour and a half or two hours of my life watching that. I got nothing out of it. It, I don't remember it. It doesn't stay with me. I'm more like indifferent to the films. They don't do anything for me, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And so I really don't watch a lot of contemporary cinema anymore. Uh, At least not the films that get like a lot of, get a lot of attention. I'll watch recent films or newer releases, but they tend to be under the radar type films. More obscure. Not a lot of people are talking about them. Not a lot of people care about them. Those tend to be the ones that I'm attracted 
attracted to for some reason, but it just depends. I'm sometimes I'm attracted to just seeing a trailer, reading a description, a certain actor, a certain director. It just depends. So this film, Summertime, is from 2015. So this is a much more recent film. And for me, it's one of those rare contemporary films that I just absolutely immediately loved and and just adored um, right off the bat. As soon as it started playing, I was like, yes. I really, really love this. And that's why I wanted to talk about it. But I just wonder if some of you can relate to that, where everybody's raving about these films. Some of them are art house, right? I'm not even talking about mainstream films. I'm not talking about commercial films. I'm talking about art house cinema and sometimes world cinema that gets so much buzz around it. And then I go to watch the films and I'm like, really? I'm just going to keep saying that throughout the episode. Or sometimes it's like American films. It's sort of some of the independent films or something. There'll be somebody I really respect as a critic who loves it. And then I go to watch it and I'm like, I really don't like this. Or I I don't remember. I don't feel anything when I watch this. I'm an outsider when it comes to this film culture stuff. I think my own taste is just really idiosyncratic. I think you can't tell from one day to the next what I'm going to be watching, honestly. One day I'm watching a classic Hollywood film. The next I'm watching something art house. The next I'm watching a documentary. My interests are all over the place and I bet a lot of people's are like that. But there's just something about contemporary cinema that I just don't get into, honestly. I try and I try and it just never works, especially if it's just really popular. Now, like a popular film that I did like recently was Eighth Grade by Bo Burnham. I'm a big Bo Burnham Burnham fan anyways. I really love his stand-up specials. He had one stand-up special on Netflix that I watched twice because I loved it so freaking much. I really loved the way he captured adolescence. I really liked that film. I kind of saw myself in the main character with her YouTube channel. I was like, that's me with my podcast. (laughs) So I did like that. So there are contemporary films that I like. It just depends. You know, it just depends on how it hits me. But Summertime hit me perfectly. I'm so excited to talk about it. In this film, Carol, uh, one of our main characters, is played by Cecil de France. And then Delphine is played by Izia Heijlin. The thing is, is that the girl that plays Delphine is actually a singer. And she goes by just Izia. She doesn't even go by her last name. She's a, you know, she's at the level of Cher, right? She's going by one name. And I just thought it was interesting that she was also a singer. She's been in like a handful of films. She was in a film about Rodan recently. She's not in a lot of stuff, but I think she's spectacular in this film. And Cecil de France, or Cecile, Cecile de France, oh my lord my pronunciation, y'all. I am rusty. It's been months since I recorded an episode. Bear with me. Cecile de France. (laughs) I really love her in this. I think she's excellent. And I went and I was looking at her filmography and now I really want to see a film she's in called uh, The Kid with a Bike that's by the Dardan Brothers. I don't know if some of you know this, but some of my favorite directors are the Dardan brothers. I I would put them really high on my list. I absolutely love everything that I've seen by them, and I've seen quite a bit. I've covered Two Days, One Night that stars Marion Cotillard. They are, they're the, they're, 
directors who I just feel like they're capturing something about the human condition in most of their films, whether it's The Sun or The Promise or Two Days, One Night. I've seen quite a few of their films. Rosetta, I really, really, really want to cover Rosetta on the podcast. So if you're if you're a regular listener, maybe I'll do that in the future. That was one of those films where I was like, yes, I need this. I need to talk about this film. I'm really drawn to films about working class people, films about class struggle, because of my own background as a working class person living in the rural South and just being a woman and dealing with that. So the Dardan brothers are just, I worship them. I absolutely love them. If I made films, I don't make films. I have no desire to be a director. I'm a writer. I come from that world. I come from a more literary background. I'm much more into language. But if I did direct films, I would want to direct films like the Dardan brothers. Like I absolutely love their style. So she she's in a film by them called The Kid with a Bike. I really want to watch it. I I don't know when I'll be able to see it though. I love how this film opens because it sets the tone for a lot of the film that we're going to see. We see Delphine played by Izia on her farm in the countryside and she's riding a tractor and I love that because throughout the film that's something that you'll see it's sort of a motif I guess of Delphine on her tractor and I love seeing a woman represented doing something that we don't normally see right and that's something in general that I love about the character of Delphine she is sort of unconventional in her femininity I think she does not wear makeup we see like spots on her face for instance I think she does wear a bra but I think Carol doesn't wear a bra and you just don't often see that nowadays she doesn't wear makeup her hair just is all over the place like her hair is just wild and free and I think it fits in with that time period of women really sort of women coming into their own and also this was a big time when women were were critiquing beauty standards the oppressive beauty standards which unfortunately I think have gotten worse because of Instagram and social media I mean we're living in a time where girls are constantly having to show themselves and perform you know, beauty and post selfies. I mean, can you imagine? I'm 30. When I was growing up in the 90s and the early 2000s, we really did not have social media. Can you imagine having to post photos of yourself constantly and then your peers critiquing those photos? I don't know. I just think there's a lot of pressure on young women to look a certain way, to wear makeup, to wear the best clothes. And I know that pressure has been on women for eons, right? But that's something that I love about Delphine and Carol and the way that they present themselves. They're very free. You know, they're not wearing bras. They're not wearing lots of makeup. They're wearing clothes that are just comfortable. Delphine does things that you would more um, expect men to do, right? Like she's on the farm, she's on the tractor, she's doing manual labor. But of course, she's showing that women can do those things. And it's okay for women to do those things. (laughs) Society tells us these roles. These roles are not innate. We're not born with them. Men are not just born wanting to, you know, be on a tractor or something. Women can ride a tractor. Women can take care of a farm. Women can milk cows, you know. Women 
can do all of that stuff. And that's what they do in the film. That's what Delphine does. Carol does when she comes to visit Delphine on her farm. Monique, Delphine's mother. Once Delphine's father has his heart attack later on in the film, it's really on these women to take care of the farm. And that's what they do. And I'll talk about that more later. But I just love the opening of the film. I think it's important because it sort of sets up a lot of what we're going to see, which is Delphine, her connection to the countryside and to her farm. You see the beautiful land in this film and the splendor of nature. And you also see the hard work that goes into that. It actually... Uh, reminded me of a recent film called The Guardians. Uh, It came out maybe a couple of years ago and I saw it. I really liked it. Nobody's talked about this film, but it's a French film. And I believe it's set during the First World War in France. And it's about the women, I think, who are taking care of a farm while some of the men are away at war. And it's just, it's another film set on a farm in France, set in the countryside. Uh, Other films came to mind like Cousin Jewel and Farabeek. Both of these are films about farms uh, in France. The Cousin Jules and Farabeek are like documentaries. They were done decades ago, but they're really important films and they focus on the rural life of France. I'm actually fascinated by rural life in general. I try to cover films at times that focus on rural life. You don't come across it a lot. And I mean, both in France and the United States, I would even put like the Apu trilogy there. I've covered Sachajit Ray's uh, Potter Panchali, and that's sort of set in a rural place in India. The rural world is of interest to me because it's where I grew up in the rural South. And I feel like it's a way of life that kind of gets forgotten or disparaged. And so I'm very interested in it. And France has quite a few films that look at farming or that look at people in the countryside and their lives. Or I even think of somebody like John Berger, amazing writer, thinker. I love his work. Read John Berger. He did this great series called Ways of Seeing, where he talked about art, just amazing things. I miss him. He he died recently and I just love him. There's a really great documentary about his life in France, in rural France, where he went to live for many, many years, possibly many decades. He lived in the French countryside. And the documentary is called The Seasons of Cansey. All of these films that I'm mentioning will be in the show notes in case you're interested in this subject. But I found it very interesting that John Berger went to live this more rural life in the countryside of France. Because that's always what I've been entranced by is the countryside. Because it's part of my soul. It's where I grew up. It's I'm not saying I grew up on a farm. I certainly didn't. But I grew up where there were like forests and meadows and grass and trees and birds and, you know, the big sky above you. And, you know, I would play outside until... Um, until nighttime with my friends in the neighborhood. And that was my life when I was a kid. And so I've always lived in the rural South, always. And it's just part of my life. Does it have difficulties? Does it have a downside? Is it very religious and conservative? Absolutely. But it's also part of me, that landscape. And it's something that I've talked about a bit on the podcast for sure. And it's something I'll continue to talk about. So I guess I'm trying to say like, this is why this film partly connects with me is because it's about the countryside. It's about that world. It's about a woman, a young woman, deeply rooted to her farm and to the land where she was raised and where she grew up. And as the film goes on, 
that becomes an important part of the dynamic between Delphine and Carol. It is an important part of Delphine's identity that she comes from the land and that she wants to stay on the land. In case I don't mention this later, a point I want to make is when it comes to growing up in a conservative area, for a lot of gay people, gays and lesbians, and I totally understand this, A lot of them who came from small towns here in the United States wanted to get out and they wanted to leave. And so they would congregate more in the cities, whether it was in San Francisco, which was a wonderful place for gays and lesbians, New York City, all kinds of different cities around the country. That became a haven for homosexuals, right? And that is so important. They would go to these cities and create their own families. And often they were um, not accepted by their families. And that still goes on and that still happens, unfortunately. And gays and lesbians still encounter hatred and hate crimes and things like that. We have by no means cured homophobia in this country, not at all. And I understand why they wanted to leave those areas and go to places where they felt more safe and they felt a sense of belonging and could find people that were similar to them. I totally get that. But I think for somebody like Delphine, she sees the value in staying. Could she go to Paris and live there with Carol like she's tempted to do at the end of the film? Yeah. But some people don't want to give that up. Some people are very rooted and connected to where they grew up and where they live And they don't want to have to give up that way of life. Because I do think that there is a different way of life between people who live in cities and people who live in the country and live in rural areas. It is very different. It's very different when you're coming from the country and you're going into a city. Some people love it. Some people feel alive. Some people, that's what they want. They want to live in a city. Some people like me can't do it. Cannot do it. I've got to have the stars above me. I've got, at night, I've got to be able to see the stars. I've got to have the the grass and the fields and the trees. And, oh, God, it's part of my soul, as I said. And I think there's something amazing about Delphine in that she stays. And I'll talk more about that later. I wonder if that's a controversial view. I don't know. But there's a value in staying There's a value in saying, I don't want to leave. I don't want to go to the city. I want to stay here and maybe fight for the people still living here. You know what I mean? And that and show that it's okay to be a lesbian and to live here, right? Not everybody has to go to the city. It's about what works for you as an individual. For some people that works, for some people it doesn't. But in this film, Delphine is very connected to the land and that's what we see immediately. And she is very invested in helping her mother and father on this farm. And of course, her father at the beginning mentioned something about a husband and immediately you can tell something's very different about Delphine because she's not interested in that at all. She does not want a husband. And we realize why later on when she goes to meet the young woman that she's been sleeping with for a while. She goes at night very surreptitiously to meet this young woman who actually tells her that she's getting married. And that was really the only option for a lot of women, right? Even in 1971, that's when this film is kind of set is the early 1970s. A lot of women still felt like they needed to get married 
married. That's what they needed to do, especially in areas that were more conservative, I'm sure. This scene, it kind of made me sad, you know, to see this girl saying she was going to get married. And it really made me think of all the lesbians back then who entered into these sort of marriages of convenience or something like that, because they had to, you know, they had to suppress those, those desires in order to survive. And of course, that's why the women's movement was all the more important because it gave these women a way to truly be themselves, to live a life that they wanted to live with another woman, to acknowledge their desires and to love who they wanted to love. And a lot of women actually paid a price for that. There's a poet that I absolutely love. Her name's Minnie Bruce Pratt. She's just this amazing lesbian poet and she was married. But then after the women's movement or during it, she actually came out as lesbian. She had her children taken away from her for a long time by her ex-husband. And it's something that's not talked about, but many women did lose their children when they came out as lesbians, their ex-husbands. And and many Bruce Pratt, I, I will say she's from Alabama and she lived in the South where I live. You know, she was in a very conservative environment and her husband was able to take the children from her. Now, I think that she's reconciled with her kids. They understand now the context and they're older, you know, they're adults. But it's a reminder of what these women sacrificed to be open about their sexuality. They actually had their children taken away from them. Minnie Bruce Pratt has several poems about that, about the experience of losing her children at that time. She was given this impossible choice at do I stay true to myself and what I desire and who I love and care about or do I stay in the closet keep my mouth shut and keep my children and nobody should have to make that choice it's it's indefensible to make anybody uh, make that choice but that's what she went through I'm glad things are better for her now obviously but that was very painful her poetry partly talks about those experiences she's a magnificent poet I absolutely love her work so definitely check her out if you're interested her work is brilliant So the film shows Delphine in that environment and then we cut to 1971 when Delphine goes to Paris. She goes to the city. It's not clear. It wasn't clear to me why she was there. Um, It must have been maybe she was one of, you know, the many women at that time who were going to universities, right? And who were entering that world. And that was also a big part of the women's movement in France was women being educated, women going to these universities. And I'm sure that radicalized a lot of women because it was at these universities that they met other feminists and they became awakened to what was possible. You don't need to be ashamed of your lesbianism or your sexuality. You don't need to take what men do to you. You don't have to keep taking it. You don't have to keep taking the sexual harassment and the groping and the violations and the taking away of your rights. You know, not being able to live as a woman on your own without a man, which is just ridiculous. I want to comment on something that will come throughout the film is the way that Catherine Corsini captures bodies in this film. I absolutely love it. It's part of the reason that it gave me so much life. And I know that's like, that's like 
what the slang that the kids use now I feel ridiculous at 30 even saying oh this gave me life but it did (laughs) there are just things about this film where I'm like yes yes you know like a woman representing other women's bodies in a way that is like respectful and authentic and there's this wonderful scene where Delphine's just washing herself at a sink she's not posing her body's not sexualized or on display for men she's just a woman washing her body and there is her body there's nothing wrong with it there's nothing shameful about it she's not there to be an object and it's something that we'll see later on in the love scenes between Carol and Delphine when they have sex. It's very different from something like Blue is the Warmest Color, right? As we know, Corsini did not love that film. <laughs> She's indebted to it. She's appreciative of the doors that it opened for lesbian films, but she does not feel like it sort of authentically represents the female experience and that it is very objectifying of women, which... I kind of agree with. I did not love the love scenes and I did critique those scenes in my own episode about blue is the warmest color. You know what? Like you realize, okay, when you watch a film by a woman, this doesn't happen all the time, but a lot of the time it does happen. You realize how much you watch films by men. Like honestly, it's the fact that you notice it that you realize sort of how, I don't know how to put this into words. I don't want to say indoctrinated, but when you watch a lot of films by men that represent women in very often objectifying and sexualized ways, and you just kind of put up with it because you want to watch this art house film, you know, you don't like it, you don't support it, but it's there. And women are much more like objects or some women don't even speak in these films or they are not even present. Or if they are present, it's just for sexual gratification of men. When you see a film by a woman and you see sort of a loving gaze put on a woman and a gaze put on a woman where she's just herself. There's just like you you can immediately identify it. Like you can immediately feel the difference between this representation of a woman compared to some of these other representations of women that you get from men. And it's just immediate. Like you just know when you see it. Like, oh, oh, she's not posing. You know, her back is not arched. You know, she's not, she's not turned into an object. Delphine is just washing her body or later on Carol and Delphine are just lying in bed naked or lying in the grass naked and it's not there to be voyeuristic. It's not there to satisfy a male gaze or male pleasure. It's just there. It's just their bodies. It's just beautiful. It's just being a woman, right? And it's just beautiful. Like, I love it. I find those kinds of representations very empowering to just see women's natural bodies doing things. It's not turned into a a porn uh, porn film. I really love when Delphine and Carol end up meeting and <laughs> the way that we're uh, introduced to Carol is perfect. <laughs> it's just her running down the street with all these other wild women slapping men on the butt and doing all kinds of stuff to these men publicly, probably to give them a taste of their own medicine. And I know in France, France is quite notorious for this. I've never been there. I love everything about France and French culture. I love French movies, French music, 
French literature, all kinds of stuff. Like I'm obsessed with France, but I don't know a ton about like the culture there in, in that way between men and women. I can only go by things that I've heard, but I've heard that women sort of have to put up with a lot of that of like the street harassment. And that's something here in the US too. And there was this video a few years ago that got released of like, I think this guy said something to a girl on the street in Paris. And like, I think she said something back and he like went and attacked her right there. It was on like uh, surveillance footage. It was very shocking. I remember some of you might know the video I'm talking about, but it just shows us what can happen when a woman dares to stand up for herself or to fight back or to talk back, right? Because men can, men can give it, but they can't take it. You know, they will harass and objectify women constantly. But then if somebody turns the tables on them, these men can't handle it. And that was something that that footage showed. And that's what happens in this scene where at first it's very fun, right? Oh, they're just going to slap men on the bottoms and stuff. And then one of the men gets very aggressive, grabs Carol, and then he starts calling them sluts and things like that. This is when Delphine kicks into gear and she's like she's gonna go save carol and get this guy off of her she attacks the guy and then all the women get on this bus and get away from him he's not able to get on the bus and this scene it turns kind of dangerous but then there's also this exhilaration on the part of the women that i love too of like them fighting back of them like not taking it anymore and feeling a sense of their own power i absolutely loved that too But it also showed that there can be a cost when you do fight back, when you are recalcitrant and you refuse to just take it and they don't want to take it anymore. You know, they're sick of taking it. And I think that's what happened a lot with second wave feminism, with the women's movement, like just sick of taking it, sick of being treated as second class citizens. And I'm by no means saying this movement was perfect. No movement is. Movements, especially for social justice, are messy and they're complicated. They leave people out. Not everything goes perfectly. The first wave wasn't perfect. If the first wave had been perfect, I guess we wouldn't have needed the second wave, right? Like history is really messy and complex and the people who make history can be as equally messy and flawed. And so I don't want to act like I'm not aware of like racial tensions or racial differences in the women's movement. Um, That black women often felt like they were left out or there wasn't a place for them. I don't want to come off as though I'm ignorant of that or I don't realize it. I'm sure there were lots of different groups of women and during that time that did not feel totally included in what we consider the women's movement. But I think we also have to remember this was a huge thing. This was a huge movement with lots of different groups, lots of different ways of thinking, different philosophies, different ways of wanting to do things. That's par for the course with any movement. It doesn't mean that it wasn't influential and that it didn't do things. It didn't do some things that were really revolutionary and important. And so I just want to make that clear. I don't know if I, I probably didn't make that clear enough in my introduction, but like, I get it. It's complicated, but that doesn't mean you just throw everything out that this group did or this movement did. The work is never done. We are still fighting now for all women to have rights. We are still fighting. Like I read a thing a couple of days ago about uh, maternal mortality and how black women have four times the, mater- the maternal mortality rate of white women. Four 
times. This is women dying because they got pregnant and had a baby. This is like unthinkable to me in the richest country on earth here in the United States. And that's because of racism. It's the intersection of racism and sexism for black women. This is real and we need to talk about it. There are so many women who are still struggling, working class women, poor women. The work is not done, but these women did set down a foundation and they did start something that we must continue as feminists now. And I just wanted to make that clear. So Delphine meets these women and she meets Carol. She meets these feminists. You know, Delphine is this girl from the country. She doesn't know about all this stuff that's going on in Paris, right? And so when she meets these women, this is her entrance into feminism. And I think that she really finds a home within it. I don't think that by the end of the film, Delphine would be who she is without the women's movement in France. That's how she's able to be open about being a lesbian and to take her life into her own hands. I think it just changes her, radically changes her. And she would not be the same person without it. And that's a beautiful thing about the film too, is by the end of it, these women have changed. They've transformed, but particularly Delphine. I absolutely love when Delphine goes to the meeting that these women hold. Um, they invite her to it. You know, when she enters the room, it's loud and it's boisterous. It's so, it's amazing. And this is actually Catherine Corsini's favorite scene in the film. And it's probably my favorite or one of my favorites as well, because it's like this moment of true awakening. Like Delphine loves it. She's smiling. I think she feels like, yeah, I have found my people. (laughs) And that's such a big deal when that happens, when you feel like, yeah, I have found my people. I have not found my people yet. But I would imagine that when you experience that, it must be amazing. This really is a space for women. Men are not allowed. (laughs) There's like this journalist that wants to come in and they're like, hell no, hell to the no. It's a very powerful and energetic meeting. And Carol stands up and she says, we're not against men. We're for the women, for us. I love that because... Previously, as I said, the women's movement and second wave feminism have been very disparaged. And and I didn't mention it at the time, but they were also seen as man-hating, right? That has also been a big part of the way that feminists have been caricatured and stereotyped. You hate men. You hate men, right? I don't hate men, but I do hate the violence perpetrated by men. I hate what men do to women. I hate the oppression of women. That's what I hate. And I will always hate it with a fire and fury. I hate rape. I hate when women are raped and violated. I hate when women are not paid what they should be paid for the work that they do. I hate when girls are held back and not encouraged to to talk and to be who they are. And, you know, I hate when women are silenced. I hate when sexual assault survivors are not believed. I hate a lot of things. I don't hate men, but I do hate this world sometimes and what happens to women in it. And I'm the same as Carol. I'm not against men, but I am for women. In this meeting, there's just such a sense of freedom and a free speech of like, you know, women being able to say among each other what they can't say around men or they can't say even around their own family members who may not understand feminism, right? When they're together in that room, it's like they are free and they are liberated to say whatever they want. And they just yell things like men in, men in the kitchen, women at the bar, and like things like that. And I just, I think we must remember that women did not get to do this. They didn't get to be together and talk freely like this. These meetings were truly liberating. 
and this scene is just so exuberant and I love when they start singing that protest song that they sing um, about women rising up and resisting their oppression and they raise their fists in the air. I, I love how these women love each other and support each other. I love how they embraced Delphine immediately. They didn't even know her but they invited her to the meeting. I love the sense of solidarity among these women. It's something that you just don't always find because we as women are socialized to be very competitive with each other, to fight over men, to be distrustful of each other, and to put one another down. But if you get us away from all that and you just get women together and allow them to talk and and just be who they are, it's just so beautiful. And you can tell that Delphine has never had any kind of experience like that. She's just been on this farm with her parents. She's probably hung out with some of the kids kids who live in the farming area, but she's never had an experience like this in a room full of women who are talking about the power of women and how they need to rise up and resist and how they have worth and they have value and they should not be, you know, second class citizens anymore. And so I love that scene. And I'm really glad that Catherine Corsini uh, said that it was like her favorite. Another de- demonstration in the film is when there's this this guy giving this lecture that's very anti-abortion. And I love how the women sort of sneak into the meeting and then they start, they start throwing things at him and they call him an asshole and they're just yelling and making a scene. And I love this. It's like, I feel like part of what this movement was about was like women making a damn scene and not being quiet anymore, not taking it anymore. Once again, they're they're doing these very rebellious things, very subversive things, but they're doing it with joy. Like that's also, I think, a stereotype about the women's movement or about feminism is like, we're all just, we're all just negative and down and sad and like we don't know how to have fun or something. We're killjoys, right? I love how this film shows that being a feminist can be joyful because it's joyful to actually love yourself as you are. It's joyful to connect with other women. It's joyful to imagine another world, a better world with without patriarchy, without domination, without sexual violence, without war. You know, it's joyful to imagine those things and it can be joyful and exhilarating to fight for them. And I know in this day and age, things are very serious and things are scary. And there's been protests about different things like climate change and there's been the women's marches and things like that. We have serious issues and serious problems. You know, I don't want to say that we don't, but there can be something really powerful and exhilarating and exuberant about fighting back. It can be scary. I mean, I think about like the protests that happened in Charlottesville, right? A few years ago against, um, what was it? Uh, neo-Nazis or, or something like that who were doing some kind of, uh, thing and you know Heather Heyer ended up getting murdered so I'm not saying protests can't be dangerous or something like that but I think in the film and some of these demonstrations that these women were doing it was really exciting to them it was exciting to buck the system it was exciting to be rebellious and I love how the music that plays in this film is like Janis Joplin because honestly when you think of rebellion you kind of think of Janis Joplin and I love her I grew up on her music my dad some of you may know he's not alive anymore. He died when I was a teenager. Uh, He was a really, really big fan of music. 
He had a massive music collection and his favorite genre was classic rock. And when I was younger, he gave me a lot of CDs and some great music recommendations. He gave me a lot of great women, whether it was Stevie Nicks, Linda Ronstadt, Joni Mitchell. Um, and he gave me Janis Joplin. He gave me her greatest hits. And I remember listening to Down on Me and Me and Bobby McGee and all of her great songs. And there's wonderful songs. I think Move Over is in this film. All kinds of great stuff is in this film. And it's like every time I watch the film, because this was my second time watching it for for this episode so that I could uh, talk about it like I know I'll probably listen to Janice later tonight because <laughs> I just I love Janice Joplin I find her to be really fascinating there's this great documentary about her called Janice Little Girl Blue I liked it but there was something kind of unsatisfying about it because I think that Janice is this person this woman who's sort of very mysterious and unknowable you know, I really think she's unknowable in a lot of ways, but she's, she's sort of loomed over my life a bit. Like I've, I've had her music in my life since I was very young and this is not related, but I was kind of thinking today about my dad and I was like, he would have made such a great disc jockey because I was in the car uh, today and like some classic rock came on or something. And I was like, God, my dad would have been an amazing disc jockey. He would have like picked great music. I don't know. I wish that could have happened for him. That's not what he got to do with his life. You know, he sacrificed a lot for me and he had a working class job. He loaded stuff onto trucks. Basically, he worked at like a big warehouse. It was like physically demanding. He didn't really get to do his dreams or anything like that. And I just thought, wow, I really wish he could have been a disc jockey because he loved music so much. I really wish that he could have pursued something with music. Like, I, I, he would have been great, like, owning a record store, working at a record store, right? And he didn't get to have that. You know, that's the thing about our parents. They just don't always get to have their dreams. And then you have your own dreams and you're like, I really want to make my own dreams happen. But then sometimes you don't know how. And I think, like, my podcast is a way that I'm trying to, like, keep my dreams alive in some way. I'm just trying to like do something beyond just the daily grind. You go to work, you do your job, you get your paycheck, you know, just to survive, but you want something more meaningful. You want to keep your dreams alive in some way. I write. I mean, I'm a writer. It's how I view myself, but I also love film. You know, I love cinema and I really love talking about it. And so my podcast is just one little way that I think I kind of keep that spark alive or that fire alive. And I would definitely encourage any of you to do that. You know, whether it's like maybe having a blog about something that you care about or starting your own podcast if you think that that's something you want to do. But be warned, it's very... It's a lot of work. <laughs> I will I will warn you from the beginning about that. But I was just thinking about that today. Like, I guess Janis Joplin just kind of brought up memories of my dad and how much he loved music and how he brought Janis into my life. And so she's very rebellious, right? So she's just wonderful. I'm really glad that Corsini went with that type of music for the film. I think it fits perfectly. I just feel like Janis embodied a lot of like feminist ideals, right? I really think she did. And so Delphine and Carol are already sort of falling in love with each other throughout all this. And then Delphine finds out that Carol has a partner. His name is Manuel. 
And she's really surprised by that and taken aback. And there's this sort of like this side story about the women. One of the women has this best friend, this gay best friend who's been put in like a mental hospital because he's gay and he might be undergoing like lobotomies and stuff like that. And so she gets the women to help her break him out of that mental hospital. And it's a really kind of heartbreaking scene. He looks so out of it, like he's been drugged or sedated while he was in there. And I do think that this sort of plot line in the film is it's like a stark and sobering reminder of the ways that gays and lesbians were treated in the past and even though major strides have been made here in the west and in other countries there are still places where homosexuals are persecuted and even executed i was reading the other day about there have been gay men executed in iran for instance a lot of people don't realize that during the holocaust um, or during the second world war gay men were put into concentration camps there's a really great documentary about that called paragraph 175 I've read a few memoirs of gay men who survived and they're absolutely like horrific. So a lot of people don't know about that history. But the thing is, is that it's still happening today. All around the world, it can still be very dangerous to be a homosexual. So that plot line just sort of, it just reminded us of the treatment of gays and lesbians, how you could be committed to a mental hospital just for being gay. It's just, it's unthinkable it's horrifying but i also like that they came together to save him and to get him out you know because they probably know that some of them could end up like that and there's a scene like they get him out of the hospital and they take him to like this house in the countryside i think and delphine and carol are talking and delphine talks about her mother and i actually thought this was kind of an important scene because it really illuminated the plight of women at this time and shows us how much the women's movement changed things even though delphine's mother works on the farm She does not receive a salary for it. She doesn't get social security. She doesn't even have a checkbook. She really has no say in what happens on that farm. Delphine's father is sort of the patriarch of the family, right? And he decides what happens. Delphine doesn't and Delphine's mother doesn't. Monique, her name's Monique. And Carol tells her, well, why don't you bring this up in the women's meetings? You know, we would love to hear about this. These are the kinds of things that we're fighting for. And Delphine seems kind of ashamed to come from the countryside, to come from that rural farming background. I would imagine, I don't know if this is the case, I would imagine that people from rural areas in France are kind of seen the way that people here in the U.S. from rural areas, um, the way that they're seen like as rednecks and hillbillies and backwards and um you know i think about the way the south is really caricatured and portrayed in films and tv shows the way the southern accent is used to denote stupidity and as somebody being sort of a moron it's something that grates me i hate it when i see it in films or tv when somebody uses a southern accent in order to portray like an idiotic person because that's my voice that's my accent you know and I'm not an idiot the people I live among are not idiots it's a complicated region every region in this country is complicated and I've said that for ages I always will there's good people in the south 
There's protesting in the South. There's resistance in the South. There's liberals, atheists, leftists, working class people in the South. Do not stereotype a region of millions of people. I would imagine that in France, there may be a similar view of people from maybe the South of France and also from the country, the countryside, right? That, oh, they're backwards. They're idiots or something. I can kind of see Delphine feels a bit ashamed to come from that background. And that's something I can relate to kind of when you're, you know, among people who are maybe not from that world or from that background and you feel kind of out of place. And slowly Carol and Delphine start to, I think they're already falling in love with each other, but their physical love is sort of gradual. Later that night after that uh, conversation, like Carol tries to get into bed with Delphine and Delphine kisses her and then Carol doesn't like that or isn't ready for it yet. And then Delphine gets upset. And it's like this really at the beginning, Carol is the one, even though she's very like, oh, Parisian and liberated and liberal. And you know, Carol's actually the one that struggles with it. Maybe because she's with Manuel, she doesn't want to cheat on him. She doesn't want to hurt him. Or maybe she, maybe she's been suppressing her lesbianism. You know, I don't think that's who I am. Maybe, you know, in her mind, she's thinking that. But then when I think she meets Delphine, that really changes things. And I think she realizes that is who she is, (laughs) that she is in love with women and she's in love with Delphine. I love when, you know, they're on the street and Delphine takes her hand. You know, this is the big scene where they finally really kiss and they sort of go to this secluded area, like down this alley or something like that. And then they start to kiss. It's very passionate. And you can really feel Carol sort of release that fear and sort of sink into Delphine. She even grabs Delphine's hair or her head with her hands and then they just kind of hold each other. It's so tender and beautiful. And I just love that like Carol is really no longer running from those feelings. And I have to talk about the love scenes in this film. Like for me, this is just a beautiful, beautiful depiction of romantic love. And I absolutely feel like it deserves to be considered like a really great love story and just a beautiful love story. You know, in their first love scene, shortly after they're kissing on the street, they're like, are they in Carol's apartment or Delphine's? It might be Delphine's apartment. And they start to undress each other, you know, and they start to kiss kiss passionately again, very tender and loving. There's been a lot of talk or some talk in the Me Too era about love scenes in movies and television shows. I know that in Hollywood, there's a lot of hand-wringing about it. More films and shows have brought in what's called intimacy coordinators to handle those scenes because they can be very sensitive. They can be difficult for actresses especially, and I do think it's a good idea to have somebody on set looking out for the women. But I also think that love scenes, and they don't necessarily have to be nude scenes, but they often are. I still think that love scenes serve an important function in film. And while I've seen many love scenes that are terrible and exploitative, I will say that blue is the warmest color comes to mind. I did criticize those scenes when I did my episode. I think that when they are done right, when they're done respectfully and tastefully, I would say, as they are in this movie, Summertime, I think they can be vital, absolutely vital in providing a representation of human sexuality that is tender, joyful, 
erotic, mutual, life-affirming, consensual, and that's all of those things are important. (laughs) I think we need a representation that counters the violence and degrading portrait of women that we often see in mainstream pornography that is very easily accessible now with the internet and that younger and younger people are being exposed to. I think when these scenes are created, especially by female directors, they can really be all the more powerful in showing women not as objects to be dominated or to be subordinate to men, but as multidimensional sexual beings who have wants and desires and whose pleasure should matter. And I truly believe that. And there's another love scene between Carol and Delphine. This is later, like, Carol definitely feels bad about cheating on Manuel. But at the same time, I think that she's following her feelings. She's following her very intense passion and attraction to Delphine. I love this scene. They just lie together in bed and they're like naked and they're eating. Like (laughs) that's all it is. I love it because you never see something like that. They're literally just laying there in bed eating and they're naked. (laughs) And I noticed that they have leg hair in the film. They have pubic hair. Thank you. It's a very natural representation of women's bodies. It's a representation that a lot of women, I think, can relate to. Having leg hair, having body hair, right? Like, it's okay to have body hair. These women look natural. They look at ease. I just absolutely love the way Corsini shows women, how she revels in their natural bodies without objectifying them. They're just playing together. They're kind of acting stupid too. Like they're just acting silly. It's the sweetest thing. They're feeding each other. And I think Carol like pretends to be a dog. Like she's whimpering or growling. Like it's just playful. You know, it's just really silly. And I just love how free they are with each other. Just totally comfortable in their bodies, in their skin. And when we see them have sex with each other, both of them have orgasms and they prioritize each other's pleasure and you really feel a true body and soul connection between these two women. I love that. I absolutely love that both of their pleasure is prioritized. It's not like one at the expense of the other. The thing about being a woman, it's one thing to have a sexuality. It's another thing to be sexualized. And to be constantly sexualized is not fun and it's not sexy and it's not enjoyable. But we as women from an early age are sort of taught that's what we should want. We should want to be sexualized. We should desire our own objectification. And I resist that and I don't like it. I do not believe that we should be seen as objects, but that doesn't mean that we're not sexual. It doesn't mean that we don't have desires. It doesn't mean that we can't be connected to our own bodies and our own eroticism. That's been really important in my own life. There is a way to be a sexual being and to have that and to have it be a very sacred, powerful, life-affirming part of you the way it has been for me. I mean, I think when you sort of discover your own body and you discover your own pleasure it can be it can almost be transcendent it's like a transcendent feeling and it can be just can give you like a lot of power and strength it can just be such a beautiful sacred thing and that's how it is for me and I love seeing that kind of thing represented on film 
Like, I just love that. And that's how I felt with this film, with the sex scenes and the love scenes. I just loved the the mutuality of them, the, you know, how they were consensual and they were tender and they were soft and they were loving and they were respectful. And like, I can't stress to you just how beautiful I think that is, how important I think it is, because we are bombarded by really degrading, sexualized, objectified images of women. And I think we as women are always sort of struggling with that, with our sexuality, with how we look, with our own sexual desires and stuff like that. So I just love when a film portrays women with desire, with sensuality and eroticism, and just does it in a really beautiful, respectful manner. That is that, I don't know what I'm searching for. I'm like searching for language for this, but just makes these women not into objects, but subjects. Makes these women into human beings. Like that's just really powerful to me. And that will stay with me from this film of seeing women with body hair, (laughs) seeing women just alive and comfortable in their bodies and how beautiful that is and how I don't get to see that a lot. I watch a lot of media where it's like, and I think we all do, where women are critiquing their bodies, talking about dieting, talking about losing weight, talking about how ugly they are and hideous they are. And, you know, women are just constantly told you're not enough. You should feel bad about yourself all the freaking time. And I just love the way these women are in this film where they're just comfortable and they're just in their bodies, in their comfortable in their skin. They're comfortable with each other. They love each other. They love themselves. It's tender. It's soft. It's loving. This is a portrait of love. This is a portrait of how to love another person, not just physically, but also emotionally. And that's what I guess moves me about the film, right? I, I love the love scene. I know I'm probably talking about them too much, but again, the thing is, is that our culture's like saturated in sex, but it's saturated in the toxic kind of sexuality. And this is a sexuality for me that is like beautiful and affirming, like inspiring and just positive. It makes me feel good when I see it, when I just see women just being themselves and not being objectified and not being turned into something that they're not, you know, they're just totally comfortable and at home with each other. And um, I love that. I absolutely adore it. About halfway through the film, Delphine gets the news that her father's had a heart attack and that she's going to have to go back to the farm and she's going to have to help her mother as well. And so Delphine returns to the farm and she has to like take over her father's duties and things like that. She has to deal with bills. She has to work on the tractor, you know, all kinds of things like that. And at one point, Delphine invites Carol to the farm because her mother goes away to be with her father for a few days. And so she invites Carol. And I love this scene. I thought it was interesting that modern music plays in it. It's this great film, a great song, In the Grace of Your Love by a band called The Rapture. And the song is from 2011. And this film is set in 1971. But this modern song is playing. I just thought that was interesting. But now I've been listening to that song endlessly. Carol comes and they're swimming in the river at first. That's when this song starts to play. And then they're just lying in the grass. And again, just comfortable with their bodies just this very natural way of them being together. And the thing about the countryside is that there is a bit of freedom to it because nobody is around. So when they're in the grass together and they're naked, they feel this sort of freedom. 
you know, because nobody's around except the cows. Nobody can see them. And she shows a lot of close-ups of their bodies during this scene as well, like close-ups of, you know, their legs and their mouths and like all these different parts of themselves. It's very sensual, very erotic scene, I think. And it reminded me a bit of a film called Dyke Tactics by Barbara Hammer. Barbara Hammer was this great lesbian filmmaker, um, sort of experimental, and I've seen a few of her films. I wish more of them were available to stream. I got lucky and saw Dyke Tactics, which shows her with one of her lovers. It shows women sort of out in nature naked and is very similar to this scene showing women with body hair and just in a very natural way that women's bodies are. And it reminded me a bit of that. And it also reminded me of a scene from James Ivory's Morris, which obviously we know was an influence for Corsini. It reminds me of when Morris and Clive, played by James Welby and Hugh Grant, go to the countryside and they're laying in the grass together. This beautiful, like, green grass, I think, from from what I can remember. Hugh Grant plays Clive and he's uh, laying down and, like, Morris, played by James Welby, is laying on top of him. And it's just a beautiful scene. (laughs) It's, like, so gorgeous. Just these two beautiful men together in nature. And it sort of is similar with this, like just two women in the grass. Nobody's around. They don't have to hide. They don't have to keep it secret. They can just be together. Or even think about Brokeback Mountain by Ang Lee, a film that I'm in the works, that I have in the works that I'm preparing to cover um, and do an episode about. Think about how the seclusion of nature allows them to be free together. It allows them privacy from other people and that's really kind of how their relationship develops from what I can remember. We see close-ups of them kissing very deeply and it's like their bodies merge together. Delphine and Carol, you know, they make love in the grass. It's it's very beautiful. Like the love scenes overall are just gorgeous in this film. And eventually Carol leaves Manuel and she comes to stay on the farm sort of a bit permanently or for a while indefinitely and Delphine just tells her mother that Carol is like this friend and Delphine just cannot come out and tell her mom that she's a lesbian. They have to keep that love secret and Carol goes along with it but she's not comfortable with it and that also reminded me of Morris and Clive when they go to Pendersley um, which is like Clive's estate and they sort of have to sneak around with each other because they're keeping their their affair sort of secret. You know, they sort of sneak into the room in Morris and then in summertime they do the same thing where Delphine will go and sneak into Carol's room where they'll be together. And really it's kind of fascinating when Carol goes to the farm because it's just women taking care of this farm. What is, like, I don't even know how to describe the things that they do or what they're doing. You know, Delphine's on the tractor. They're like doing the hay and just, you know, all kinds of stuff that you would do on a farm. Monique, Delphine's mother, she doesn't really get what the fuss is about. Like Carol's telling her, like, it's amazing what you do. It's amazing that we're coming together as women and taking care of this farm. You know, we don't necessarily always need a man to help us with stuff like that. We're capable. And Monique just kind of doesn't, she just shrugs it off. Like she doesn't think she's doing anything amazing or important, but Carol's trying to give her some self-worth. Like, hey, look what you're doing. Like you're keeping this farm going. Things are not falling apart just because you're 
husband isn't here, I would imagine Monique, you know, from the generation that she's from, hasn't really been told that. I mean, like I said, feminism had been around in France for a long time, back to the French Revolution and even to the 40s with Simone de Beauvoir's work, The Second Sex. Feminism had been around for a while, but 1970 and the women's movement really changed things and within a short period of time really transformed life for a lot of women. But I'm sure Monique is from a generation that couldn't totally understand, like, what are these women going on about? (laughs) And you kind of see that happen with the Me Too movement where, you know, women who are speaking out about sexual harassment and stuff like that, who are maybe in their 20s or who are like my age, 30, you've got women who are kind of older, like in their 40s or 50s being like, why are these women making such a ruckus? (laughs) Like, what are they going on about? There is a little bit of judgment there. And I would imagine that at that time, there would have been something similar, sort of the generational shift. And Monique just doesn't see what the big deal is about what she's doing. But Carol's trying to sort of, you know, give her some self-esteem, I guess, and sort of raise her up a bit and say, hey, look what you can do. And I love, I love that aspect of feminism, how it's about raising women up and helping us see that there's nothing wrong with us. We're fine as we are. And the work that we do is valuable because we are valuable. We are all valuable as women. We're not inferior. And I just wanted to say that I like how part of this film is in Paris and part of it is in the country and that it's sort of half and half. We really get to enter both women's worlds and they enter each other's. So Delphine is in Paris you know, and she's in Carol's world. And then Carol goes to the country and she's in Delphine's world. They sort of step out of their own comfort zones for a time and try to see what life is like for the other person. Delphine is from a very different environment that she has to navigate as a lesbian. But you can tell that even though they love each other, they are very different. And it's really not clear throughout the film if they're going to be able to bridge that difference. Carol eventually is not interested in staying in the countryside. I think she feels very suffocated by it. She wants to go back to Paris, but Delphine is very tied to the land and to the farm, which we see at the beginning of the film where she's riding her tractor, right? (laughs) Um, She's out in that beautiful, beautiful land. Another film that comes to mind that I've covered is Nicholas Philibert's To Be and To Have. And that's a film I covered. It's actually a documentary about a teacher and his students that he teaches like in rural France, like in the countryside. And there's another, that's another film where I talk about rural life. We see that Delphine is just very tied to the land. It's one of the major conflicts in the film, but they do love each other. They love each other truly and deeply. Like it's so clear that they come from different worlds. And because Delphine comes from that world, she's struggling. She's not ready to be public about being a lesbian, even though that's what Carol wants. I think we all have to do things in our own time and our and at our own pace. Not everybody gets there at the same time. Carol is out and proud, it seems like, for a while. Although she did struggle at the beginning, right? Like she did. At first, she was not really open to being with Delphine in that way to being having a sexual relationship. But Delphine is not at that stage yet publicly. The thing is, is that like Carol's better at being public about being lesbian, whereas Delphine is more comfortable comfortable being private with her sexuality. And also Delphine has a lot on her. You know, she has to take care of the farm. She's dealing with a lot 
Carol has much more freedom. She's free to leave her relationship with Manuel. I can't remember if they're married or not. Carol's free to be open about her sexuality in Paris around the women, but Delphine is much more confined by this conservative rural environment where she lives. Carol and Delphine, while freely loving and kissing each other when they're in those fields alone, they still have to hide their relationship in the country. Any slip can be costly. Somebody can come upon them. There's a few times where they have been seen by men who have noticed them kissing or holding hands. And Delphine is very affected by that and is terrified of it being revealed that she is gay. Delphine just really struggles with telling her mother and having her neighbors know that she is a lesbian. It's not as easy for Delphine. And I think the movie gives her the space to be conflicted without judging her or chastising her for it. She has a lot to lose. But at the same time, you know, you see Carol's viewpoint. She thinks that Delphine cares more about the farm than their relationship, and she's not wrong. (laughs) Delphine has a lot on her, a lot of pressure and expectation. She really kind of has the weight of the world. I feel like Delphine is this kind of person that has the weight of the world on her. And I don't think at this time in Delphine's life that she's ready for this relationship with Carol. And then Carol feels hurt because she's given up so much for Delphine. She left Manuel. She came to the countryside. You know, she's invested a lot into Delphine. She feels like Delphine's not giving as much or putting as much into the relationship. But the truth is, is that Carol has met Delphine at a time in her life when she's just not capable of it. She's trying to take care of this farm. She's trying to take care of her father. There's so much that she's trying to do, you know, and I kind of relate to that, honestly, and the things that have been going on in my life recently, like with my mom's health issues and her knees getting worse, that's making it harder for her to walk. And then when she broke her shoulder, just really hard to juggle everything, to juggle working and taking care of her and taking care of the house and doing the chores. And I don't feel like I have much of a life. I don't have a lot of extra time. I'm doing everything I can to find the time for this podcast and to keep it going because I've built it up and created this thing and I'm not willing to let it go. But I also want to read books and watch films and write and there's just so much I want to do and I don't have the time. You know, I'm just trying to survive. I'm trying so hard to keep everything going. And I feel like I do have the weight of the world on my shoulders. And it's a lot. It's a lot when you're taking care of somebody or like taking care of something like a farm. Like I can't even imagine all that would go into that and the work that it would take on your own to do that and with not a lot of help. I relate to Delphine in that way because of things that have happened in my own life recently. And of course, Monique... Delphine's mother walks in on Delphine and Carol one morning. They're naked in bed. So Delphine does not have to worry about coming out now because it's out there. Monique demands that Carol leave. She thinks that Carol has sort of been this bad, sinister influence on her daughter. And she doesn't realize that this is who Delphine has always been. Delphine's a lesbian and she loves women and there's nothing wrong with that, but Monique is not able to see that. She is not able to accept it. And the ending is very powerful. It reminded me, this is the scene that reminds me sort of of Desert Hearts a lot, is because the end of Desert Hearts, there's a train involved. I'm not going to give away what happens, but there is sort of the train station and this, will we be together? Will we not? So Delphine wants Carol is kicked off the farm and Monique tells her to leave. Delphine decides, well, if if Carol's leaving, then I'm leaving and I'm going to go with her and we're going to be together, you know, and she's ready to do that. I was also reminded of 
brief encounter the ending of brief encounter like isn't there a train involved or maybe just trains always remind me of brief encounter i don't know i love that film by david lean so at first delphine gets on the first train with carol it seems like oh they're gonna run away together they're gonna be together she's gonna go back to paris but you have to wonder can you really leave behind everything you've ever known and should you as i said at the beginning of my of my analysis of the episode everybody doesn't have to leave there are people who can create lives in places where it might be kind of difficult because of your identity that may not be for everybody some people have to go to the cities they've encountered violence or terrible assault or whatever or they've been kicked out of their families and they need a haven they need to get to the cities or they need to get to more liberal progressive accepting places but i think for some people they want to stay they're very connected to a place they're very rooted to a place and I see Delphine in that way just as I see myself that way like I'm very rooted to the south I've lived outside of the south a little bit not much just for a few months I lived in New England a few years ago and I was miserable I was truly miserable living up there I hated it I hated every moment of it the culture was different the people were different you know it's no offense to people who live in New England or live in the northeast I have many listeners from that area because my podcast where I host my podcast it gives you some metrics like about where people are listening I have listeners all over the world and all over the United States so it's not a put down but here in the south we don't get snow the way that y'all do up in the northeast New England and I missed I missed southern accents I know that's crazy but I missed hearing people talk like me I felt kind of like a freak every time I would open my mouth people were like well where are you from and I was like oh god it was just weird it was a very different just culture and I don't know it's hard to describe I was just really miserable and I'm sure there are people from the northeast or other parts of the country who have tried to live in the south and like oh my god I hate this you know you're connected to what you're connected to and where you grew up and things like that and it's kind of hard to shake it it's hard to let it go like this is the way of life that I am used to and that I feel connected to I'm very rooted to this land in particular, to this region. So not everybody can give that up. And giving it up comes with a great cost. It's just not something that they want to do. When they go to catch like their connecting train or the next train, Delphine really loses her courage and she decides that she can't leave after all. So Carol gets on the train and leaves and Delphine goes back to the farm. And I think in a way, I always knew they probably wouldn't end up together. They were from very different worlds, you know, and Delphine is also younger than Carol. I mean, you can tell that Carol is a is quite a bit older than her, you know, at least by a decade, I would say. To me, the ending was very believable. They're at different stages of their life and you have to let somebody go through whatever they're going through. When you're 30 and you might know somebody who's 20, they're not at the same stage as you are in your life. Like I can't really ha- imagine having a friend who's 20 and I'm 30 because they're going through a completely different phase of their life they might be in college or you sometimes have to let people learn things on their own 
Like, I truly believe that. You have to let people discover things at their own pace. Like, you can't expect if you're in your 30s for somebody in their early 20s to totally understand the world in the same way that you do. To have the maturity, to have the experience. Because the only way you build up those things is through life experience and is through time and through the things that you go through. To me, I always felt like these two women, while they loved each other and they were very connected to each other, both body and soul, you know, I kind of felt like. I didn't I didn't see how they could make it work because they are just from such different worlds. To me, the ending was totally believable. Delphine is young and she's still coming to terms with herself. She's still discovering herself and who she is. Hell, I'm 30 and I feel like I'm still discovering myself and figuring out who the hell I am because I don't know most of the time. Delphine just has a lot of responsibility in her life. Her life is not her own yet. She's still having to live for others. She's still having to live in a way that is determined by other people. It sort of reminds me of this song by Tori Amos called Girl. It's from her album Little Earthquakes, which I love. And the lyric goes, she's been everybody else's girl. Maybe one day she'll be her own. And to me, that's sort of Delphine. Like, she's everybody else's girl right now. She's her mother's girl, her daddy's girl. Hell, she's Carol's girl at one point, right? But she has to decide to be her own girl and to make her own decisions and do what's right for her. You could see her not going with Carol as a lack of courage. I know I said that earlier, but the more I talk about it, maybe it was actually an act of maturity. Maybe it was an act of realism that she understands that this can't work. I can't give up everything I've ever known for you. Then I'm going to resent you. Then I'm going to have to live in Paris where maybe she doesn't, even though she went through a lot of awakening in Paris and she seemed to really love, um, you know, the women that she met, maybe that's not the life that she wants every single day for the rest of her life. And maybe her not being with Carol, while it is heartbreaking and we want the two of them to run off together, right? Just like, you know, with Morris, Morris and Alex Scudder run off together, even though it's not totally, you know, within that world, it probably wouldn't have really happened. But E.M. Forster, who wrote the book that the film's based on, wanted to give a happy ending to a gay relationship. You know, even though we want Carol and Delphine to be together, I actually think that maybe Delphine is actually being true to herself and realizing that she needs to take care of this farm. She can't abandon her parents. She can't abandon her mother, you know, even though her mother not accepting her is obviously very hurtful. And I guess some people would judge her. And I'm sure there are some of you listening who are like, oh, hell no, she should have left. Who gives a damn about her homophobic mother? I get that. But there are people, you love them regardless, you know, when they're your parent. And we can have really complicated relationships with people, can't we? The film could have given them that happy ending, but I think instead the film embraces something more ambiguous and messy, something that makes us think a bit more. I think an ending that's truer to the characters and truer to one one character in particular who is Delphine. I think it is true to her that she would go back to the land and go back to the farm. Then the film fast forwards to 1976. Carol's working at an abortion clinic. According to my research, abortion was legalized in France in 1975. Kind of reminded me a bit of the Agnes Varda film, One Sings the Other Doesn't, which was made in 1977. And I think that film 
addresses abortion and it certainly addresses the women's movement as well and sort of um, the influence of the women's movement on on people's lives and women's lives. So we see Carol talking to a young woman about abortion and contraception and it's really great to see Carol in that role to helping other women which is how you thought she'd always end up and she receives a letter from Delphine. It's what five years later And in the letter, Delphine says that a few years after Carol left, that Delphine was finally able to leave the farm and leave her parents. The thing is, she did it in her own time, didn't she? She couldn't do it in that moment in 1971, but she did it five years later. And she writes that she moved to the south of France. Now she has her own farm. She says she regrets not going with Carol. And she regrets that she didn't have the courage to leave at that time. And I understand that. And I'm sure she wonders what what her life could have been, you know, if she had gone with Carol and the life that they could have created together. And of course, I mourn that. Like, I mourn Carol and Delphine not being together. Like, I absolutely wish that they could have, but I also feel like Delphine was just not ready for it. Sometimes it's okay to be at a time in your life where you're not ready for something and you know that you're not ready for it. And there may come a day when you are. And that's kind of how I see Delphine. And I just see that, you know, now she has her own farm. That was always very important to her, it seems like, that she stay in the countryside, that she have a farm of her own, even though it's small. Carol is with another woman. Their lives still ended up well, but they'll always be haunted by each other and they'll always wonder about each other. It's that kind of story where they'll always wonder what could have been and that what could have been will always sort of hover there and sort of haunt their lives. So... That is my discussion of Summertime, La Belle Saison by Catherine Corsini. I really hope that you liked it. I want to give a shout out to some of my wonderful patrons, David, Eddie, Jenny, Lane, Haroon, Thomas, Kelsey, Aaron, Max, Tyler, Juan, Till, JD, Vanessa, Spunden, Polina, Olivia, Jesse, Feminist Overlord, and Michelle. Thank you all so much. You really do make the podcast possible and I appreciate your support. Until next time, keep watching great films. Bye for now. Mm-hmm.